Australia's mining giant BHP is one of the most influential organizations in the world of commodities. It's up there with the largest producers of copper, and last year alone it generated enough iron ore to make steel for over 3,000 Sydney Harbour bridges. It operates in more than 17 countries, employs some 80,000 people, and works with over 9,000 suppliers. It's quite likely that something you use today will have been produced partly by the efforts of BHP. But like other players in the sector, the company faces significant challenges as the world transitions to net zero, and we collectively work to decarbonize. So how does an operation like BHP balance the needs of its varied stakeholders, from their workforce to their shareholders, with the threat of a warming planet? What are the necessary trade-offs that have to be made? To find out, I'm joined from Vancouver by Chief Executive of BHP, Mike Henry. Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ned. BHP is quite literally on the front line of ESNG, and each require very different considerations. How do you think about the trade-offs between each of them? Maybe I'll just start with the nature of the industry itself. It's unlike some industries, you know, we deal, we've always dealt with a range of, of ESG um, issues and we've needed to demonstrate ESG leadership over time. So it's something that we're quite experienced with. Um, of course, it's important because we're making decisions, very large investment decisions into new mines, for example, that are going to be around for decades to come. So not only do we need to be aware of, of um, what the needs of today are, we need to be able to look into the future and gauge how societal expectations are likely to change um, and how the impact that we have on the environment or local communities um, needs to be mitigated or we need to be adding value to the stakeholders uh, uh, around us. Now, you asked the question about um, trade-offs and, and what trade-offs exist and how we go about managing them. Um, you know, I don't want to say that trade-offs don't exist, but sometimes I think the notion of trade-offs itself can be a bit of an easy out. Um, and the reality of our industry is you can't sacrifice one of ESG for another. We need to be upholding high standards across all three of those uh, uh, dimensions. And therefore, we always have to be looking to how we go about minimizing the trade-offs that need to occur or the impact of chasing one of those dimensions has on another uh, dimension. I think this is going to be a really relevant point going forward because as the world seeks to decarbonize, the act of decarbonization is going to be incredibly metals intensive. Uh, the world is going to need a lot more supply of copper, a lot more nickel, and some of the other um, uh, metals that, that uh, the mining industry produces. If left unchecked, that can have bad consequences in terms of water, biodiversity, and community. Um, and therefore, both mining companies, but also capital markets, need to be focused on how we go about ensuring that high standards are maintained across all, such that we're able to achieve the very important objective of decarbonization whilst ensuring that there's not untoward impacts on those other elements of, of ES or, or, or G. As a follow-up question to that, Mike, let me give you a practical example. In Australia, you have coal mining operations, which obviously support local communities. At the same time, those mining operations have an emissions profile which might be damaging. How do you reconcile the two? So first of all, we will be um, led by what's happening in the world around us. So if I think about coal specifically, we, we, sh we should differentiate between thermal coal, so coal used for power generation and coal used for steel making. Now, we've made a separate decision that's not driven by wanting to reduce our emissions footprint 
we've made a separate portfolio related decision that's about risk and shareholder returns and so on to step out of um, uh, thermal coal. So to divest our thermal coal assets, we already have one uh, um, transaction agreed around our stake in the Saron asset in Colombia. We have a process underway around a thermal coal asset here in, in, in Australia. But if we were continuing to own those assets and we were feeling the tensions around ongoing support for the community and um, you know needing to mitigate emissions, we'd be coming at it from two perspectives. So one, we would be in the event that the market was indicating that thermal coal demand was going to fall and therefore that would impact the ongoing viability of the operations in question, we would be very active in defining how we would go about supporting employees and the communities in question through that transition. And in the case of mining, that transition tends to be years, if not a decade long in the in the making. So there would be plenty of opportunity for us to weigh in with other community stakeholders and develop a plan around how we could go about ensuring that employees got retrained and potentially how other businesses got stimulated into the uh, uh, community. So that would be in the event that there was going to be a demand-driven impact on the operation. But the other thing that we would need to be doing is assessing the viability of that operation against kind of a global supply base to determine where it ranked in terms of its, its carbon footprint, both in operations and in end use. And in the particular um, uh, mines that BHP has in Australia, they sit at the very good end of the, the, the spectrum. So in a world that's seeking to reduce emissions, these mines are likely to have a lower or they have a, a, a better emissions footprint than some of the other mines out there. And therefore, you know, the likelihood is that other mines will be impacted before these mines um, are, are impacted. Now, in the case of steelmaking coal, um, we've made some portfolio decisions that see us focusing our portfolio on higher quality coking coals. Uh, and that's because those coals are going to help the steel industry to decarbonize in the near to medium term. Um, as they um, look to transition to longer-term solutions for, um, for for full decarbonization of, of steel. You know, we've talked today and uh, about, you know, climate change being a significant risk. Uh, but in your comments just now, you did touch on uh, the opportunities that climate change presents an organization like BHP. How do you contextualize the opportunity associated with with, with climate change? For the world to decarbonize, it's going to need a lot more metal. So something like um, two times as much copper in the next 30 years as was required over the last 30 years. Four times as much nickel if we want to hit 1.5 degrees uh, C. Two times as much steel. Um, and I think that's an underappreciated uh, fact. Now, the implications of that for BHP as a major producer of copper, of nickel, of steel making raw materials is that there's a lot of upside, both in terms of demand as well as potentially in, in, in pricing for our commodities. The 1.5 degree scenario, so a world of more aggressive action uh, globally to address um, climate change, is actually the best scenario for um, uh, BHP because of the impact that it has on many of the commodities that BHP produces. Um, I believe that you know a, a, a comprehensive focus on ESG is actually going to play to BHP's advantage. Um, because of the track record that we have around the ESG, the leadership that we've shown, and the capabilities that we have to go in, find new resources, and develop them in a way that is very sustainable environmentally, and which ensures that there's contribution back into the societies and the communities close to, to those operations. 
You mentioned, and I think I mentioned as well in the introduction, that you're running a very large organization, some 80,000 employees. You know, how do you, as a leader, encourage everyone in the organization to focus on the move to decarbonization? Uh, you, you would be, um, well, possibly not surprised, but the, the, it, it's hard to overstate how much of a drawing card ESG leadership and high ESG standards are um, for talent. Our current employee base, the 80,000 employees that you talk about, are expecting us to operate to high standards. They're proud of working for a company that um, is clear about wanting to demonstrate ESG leadership and is able to demonstrate that it's doing so. Now, of course, there's always you know, the potential for a gap between intent and what people would like to see and what actually happens in, in practice because people are working to competing priorities and so on. How do we go about managing that is, well, first of all, we embed um, you know, a strong focus on ESG right into our culture. Uh, we have what's called the, the charter values in, in BHP, which set out our values. Value number one, sustainability. Uh, we build um, uh, e, you know, fairly ambitious ESG targets and goals into our plans, so into our business plans, right down to the uh, individual operation uh, level. Those targets are a combination of longer-term uh, targets and short- and medium-term targets, which people then get assessed against uh, in terms of, of performance. But we're, we're really pushing on an open door here. Uh, people are very receptive to what we're trying to achieve on the um, kind of ESG front. Um, it's just a matter of giving them some specifics around exactly what that looks like in practice, uh, and then ensuring that they're appropriately supported in achieving those outcomes. Is it safe to assume that incentives within the organization have changed? You talked about targets and goals. Would, would, would that have built into people's KPIs as they think about their required deliverables? Uh, 100%. So, so the, the, the targets aren't just um, kind of business targets. They're built into individuals' uh, KPIs. Now, depending on the role that an individual occupies, those might look different. But everybody's going to receive part of their um, uh, compensation or incentive uh, off the back of, of company and team performance. Um, now, you know, I, I look at it and say we have many people across the, the company, and I would venture to say most, who don't get up every day saying, what are my KPIs? You know, what do I need to achieve that KPI? But I think embedding these targets into individuals' KPIs is important because it's a tangible demonstration of what's important to the company. Shifting gears slightly, Mike, on the heels of COP26, I wanted to spend a minute on, on net zero. And, and I'd love to hear from your perspective, what do you think the key levers are that need to be pulled in aggregate for us to achieve this 1.5 degree scenario? So climate change will be solved by three things. Um, technological advancement, uh, secondly, change in consumer behavior. Uh, and thirdly, of course, is the policies that are going to drive those first two, uh, uh, two things. There's big levers that need to be pulled to help the world decarbonize. And one of them, of course, is the move towards renewable electricity supply uh, globally uh, but through you know, electrified uh, light vehicle fleet and, and so on. Um, but in those areas, technologies are already known. So this is largely uh, an issue of investment that will occur over time. And the question is, to what extent can that investment be accelerated beyond the natural life cycle of the installed uh, infrastructure? But there's, you know, long term, there's no fundamental impediment to getting those done. There's other areas like steelmaking decarbonization, for example, where the technologies today simply don't exist 
or they don't exist in you know practically economic um, uh, terms. And so in those areas, there will be much more significant breakthroughs required, either in terms of new technologies or the economics of existing technologies. And you know, that's but one of the hard to abate or very hard to abate sectors that are out there. Cement would be uh, another, for example. So in these areas, the focus really does need to be on technological breakthroughs. And that's something that BHP has been very uh, focused on. We have partnerships in place with a number of the steelmakers out there trying to to aid their efforts to decarbonize. And we also have some investments in in breakthrough technology startups, for example, through our venturing arm. The, the path to net zero will require some pretty heavy lifting from emerging economies. Um, and obviously, China being a, a perfect example, the Chinese steel industry. China has come out and said they plan to be net zero by 2060. Is this something that you think is is achievable? It's definitely feasible, albeit clearly a very ambitious um, uh, target. Um, now, I have to. I, I'll start by saying that everything that we're seeing on the ground backs up the achievability of that target. You know, we've seen a, a shift or an uptick in the level of urgency and focus this is getting from our customers and suppliers in 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 China. It's a regular part of their conversations with with us. We see it coming through from policymakers in in China and other um, kind of actors in in the Chinese economy. The big challenge for China in achieving net zero by 2060 isn't going to be the shift in how they're producing electricity or in the light vehicle fleet, because as I said earlier, those technologies are known uh, and that's getting a lot of attention already in China. I think the areas that are that are going to be a, a bigger challenge are going to be things like steel making, chemicals, cement, where um, China is a big producer kind of on, on the global stage of those in, in, in those industries. And given the rapid growth that has occurred in China, the capital stock in those industries is still relatively young. Um, and so, you know, the blast furnace fleet in China, for example, still has has decades of life left in it. Uh, unlike another jurisdiction like Europe, for example, where blast furnaces might be closer to the end of life and therefore there's a natural transition point, we're still well in advance or China is still well in advance of that. So that's really where the challenge is going to lie. And I suspect the way that we'll see this play out is that the strong, uh, urgent focus this is getting within China, we'll see the steel mills, which is an industry that we know best, we'll see the steel mills look to other means to partial decarbonization in the short to medium term, whilst they continue to operate their existing blast furnaces. And this can be through uh, better raw materials, which increase blast furnace uh, uh, efficiency. It can be through injection of hydrogen into the blast furnace and so on. So things that don't achieve full decarbonization, but partial decarbonization. And then when the blast furnaces reach the end of their uh, useful life, they would then look to transition to something like green DRI, for example, which would be uh, essentially emissions uh, uh, free. Do you think corporates like yourselves and investment investors, asset managers like like Fidelity should be treating emerging markets differently from the perspective of hopes and aspirations for transition than the, the standards that we apply to develop markets? Well, I, I think context is important here. Um, and therefore, the point at which a, a, you know, a given economy reaches net zero and or how they go about achieving net zero I think will depend a little bit on the context. And so, you know, looking at something like the 2060 net zero target for China, uh, some people might look at that and say, well, that's 10 years later than what's occurring in some other countries. However, I think it's really important to understand just how ambitious that 2060 target is in itself 
given the nature of where the Chinese economy is currently, uh, both in terms of uh, level of, of uh, development and composition. Um, and therefore, you know, what we all need to be able to stand, step back and look at is the totality of what's being agreed to around the world and whether the totality of what's being agreed to is going to broadly see us in the right uh, uh, landing zone or not. In getting ready for our conversation today, I was speaking to Fidelity's research analyst who has a long history of looking at BHP and its operations. And one of the things that struck me as very interesting was that the emissions of your customers, or scope three emissions, are multiple times the emissions of BHP itself. Uh, how does this present a challenge for you or, or even an opportunity? Well, you're right, Ned. So the, the scope three emissions are multifold, our scope one and scope two emissions. And not only are they multifold, the two sets of emissions, operational emissions and scope three emissions, are quite different in the level of, of control that BHP is able to exercise over them. Our operational emissions are largely within our control. You know, there's some new technologies required um, and, and so on. But we know that at the end of the day, if we focus our attention on those, if we deploy enough effort, enough uh, resources to it, we can bring those emissions uh, down. And we're very intensely focused on, on, on doing so. You then come to scope three emissions. We don't control the decisions or we're not the decision makers on those, on, on those parts of the value chain that are required to reduce those emissions. So again, I'll use steel making as an example. Um, our customers, steel mills, their operational emissions are our scope, scope three emissions. There's some serious investment required on their part and you know, new technologies required to achieve net zero for them. Now, just because we don't control those decisions doesn't mean that we can ignore that part of the value chain because it is very a very big part of the emissions associated with BHP products. But we must recognize that in terms of scope three, we have to collaborate with others and that these problems will only be solved by various parties in the value chain coming together um, and working together to advance new technologies um, and potentially some, some investment decisions. How is that translated into action for us, we've entered into partnerships with a number of the world's leading steelmakers. So steelmakers who make up 12, somewhere between 12 and 15% of global steel production, where we're contributing know-how and uh, some uh, uh, financial support towards their efforts towards decarbonization. There's other parts of our scope three, like maritime transport of BHP's products, or the emissions associated with the goods and services provided to BHP. Um, where we think we can exert greater influence because we're a buyer of, of, of ocean freight, we're a buyer of, of goods and services. And there, in those cases, we've said we will be net zero by 2050. Um, and we've put in place medium-term uh, uh, targets as, as well. But it all comes back to the level of influence that we believe we're able to exert over different parts in the value chain. One, and two, levels of technology readiness to enable decarbonization. You mentioned earlier, you know, this idea of divestment. And for those people who follow BHP, um, people will know that you've announced your intention to merge your oil and gas business with Woodside Petroleum. But more broadly, how do you contextualize the quick fix of divestment and its obvious immediate impact on your portfolio level emissions versus retaining an asset in, in your portfolio and, and transitioning that asset towards carbon reduction over time? Well, yes. So um, let me start by saying we don't have any quick fix uh, uh, divestments. And, and this is something we've been 
kind of very, very disciplined about. We're not going to divest assets because we believe that that's going to result in a better emissions footprint for BHP. Because as you allude to in the question, it actually doesn't solve anything. It shifts emissions around. Uh, and therefore, one of the standards that we hold ourselves to is when we divest an asset, we rebaseline our emissions. So we aren't seeking to claim any credit in terms of a shifting um, emissions profile as a result of, of, of divestments. These divestments are made for shareholder value reasons. And because of the way that we think about where we want to continue deploying capital to in the organization, uh, how we see long-term risks and whether risks are skewed to the upside and downside for certain um, uh, commodities, and finally, whether there's greater value to be unlocked in somebody else's hands. Um, and through merging the BHP Petroleum Group with Woodside, we create a new organization that's going to be larger, more resilient, and more capable of navigating the energy transition, including investing in things like hydrogen, um, ammonia, and car carbon capture and storage. Um, and so we see that as being a perfect solution. It frees us up to focus on those commodities that we see as being long-term value adders for shareholders, um, things like copper and nickel and potash. Um, it ensures that the assets that are moving out move into an organization that's going to be more resilient and better able to navigate the uh, energy transition. And finally, it gives shareholders choice because the reality is that we have some shareholders who see opportunity in oil, oil and gas, particularly those companies that are able to navigate the energy transition well, and other shareholders who would prefer, prefer to be investing their dollars uh, elsewhere. And this mechanism that we've created will create more choice for, for, for shareholders. So I think you've been very clear, a focus on creating a sustainable world, not just a sustainable portfolio. So that's, that's a helpful characterization. One final question, Mike, on biodiversity. It's something you mentioned earlier in some of your comments. It seems that biodiversity is really now beginning to get the attention that it, that it, that it needs within the context of ESG. What role does biodiversity play in your thinking as a leader and within BHP's profile more broadly? We've been uh, focused for uh, quite a long time on ensuring that we were minimizing impacts to uh, biodiversity in the regions in which we operate. Uh, we have looked at offsets. We're focused on BHP becoming a nature positive uh, uh, company with you know, a, a lot of effort going into assessing the true biodiversity impacts of BHP's operations because I'm of the or we're of the view that you know, not only is this gaining greater public focus, I think it has the potential to become the next outrage issue out there of, you know, if, if a company um, takes a step wrong in this space, it can become, you know, quite a, 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 an issue very quickly in the public domain. And in addition to that, given the point that I made earlier around just how metals intensive the world's effort to decarbonize is going to be, um, left unchecked, we, you know, one would expect that the biodiversity impacts are going to be larger, and that's simply unacceptable. The way to avoid that is to improve standards and to ensure that companies are operating to those higher, higher standards. And capital markets have a role to play in this as well, um, both in terms of working together with other stakeholders to ensure that very clear standards are defined, to ensure that um, companies are able to be rated in a uniform, consistent way against those standards in terms of their, their company performance, and then to ensure that capital is flowing towards companies who do have that track rec record, record of high performance, and, and those companies need to be seeing a premium. And the laggards in this space, well, that needs to be reflected in their attractiveness or lack thereof to uh, investors as, uh, as well. So this is going to be a real area of collective effort. Um, but I'm sure that if we all weigh into it, um, we can help avoid some of those 
you know, potential untoward trade-offs that we spoke about earlier. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you for painting the picture of life as a chief executive in the in the in the crosshairs of ESG and for characterizing BHP's strategy and your role to play in decarbonization. Thank you so very much. Thanks very much, Ted. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.